Chris, did you watch the Super Bowl? Oh, yeah, sure did. All right, bold prediction. I think the Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey thing is just staged. Why do you say that? Because I think next year, she will be the halftime performer and will debut the song of her breakup with Travis Kelsey. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. This is a scoop from Touchpoint. The Chiefs will be back for a three-peat. They'll be back in the Super Bowl. There will have been a nasty breakup. She will be the halftime performer and will be premiering her song, which rumor has it is about her breakup with Travis Kelsey. I mean, it's basically WWF wrestling at this point. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 371. Recorded post-Super Bowl. And- uh, sponsored by DraftKings. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we wish. Yeah. If you're going to make a wager, go ahead and put it down now. Taylor Swift, halftime. Well, thanks again for, for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Chris and I certainly appreciate the support. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. It's where you can sign up for the TPS report. A quick email to start your week. Five articles. Hopefully, we'll value add. I've got a cool show today. I think it'll be fun. Good interview. Uh, before we get to all of that, uh, we're going to take a brief pause here to let you go sign up for the TPS report again over at touchpoint.health. Be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, we're going to be talking about change and resiliency through change. And we have a really great interview later on in the show with uh, David Perry, where he talks a lot about uh, leadership styles to help with the current state of our industry. But before we jump into that, I think it's important for us to kind of reflect back on the fact that our industry is going through some tremendous changes. I know many of you listening in know that we've talked about this before, but in some cases, this is, I hate to use the term because I know it's one of your favorite terms. This is unprecedented. Unprecedented. Don't you agree? Yeah. I wish we could just go back to precedented times. But 
We can't, unfortunately, or fortunately. I don't know. Depends on how you look at it, I guess. But let's talk through a few things that that obviously are, are kind of the lightning rod and or the push, if you will, towards the need to, to think about things a little bit differently. I've got a list we'll kind of riff through here for just a minute. But technology, we talk about it every week. It's it's nothing new. But just relative to that, matter of fact, Chris, I was interviewed by a college student just a bit ago for their communications class. And this is one of the things I talked about is what is changing the industry, what they need to be thinking about as students or as new entrants into the workforce that, you know, being open to change and things like that. And part of that was this idea of, of technology. We've talked about AI, certainly data analytics, all the virtual care modalities involving side of care that's obviously driven by technology um, is a big one. We've been involved in technology for so many years, Reed, right? We've seen rapid adoption of technology, but talk about the scale of technology adoption and innovation over the past, I don't know, five years. It seems like it's moved at such a tremendously fast pace so much faster than I've seen before. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, right? You and I have seen the advent of many different things coming in and out of this space, but boy, oh boy, I just can't keep up with it sometimes. It's a lot. Another thing that we kind of outlined is it really is many of the things that are impacting our industry kind of is a, an output of what happened during the pandemic. Yeah, we still talk about the pandemic now, but because what it's done is on a global level, it's really kind of brought forward a magnitude of a global health focus that I don't think we've we've seen at this level before. Obviously, it's done a lot to health systems here in the U.S. It's kind of stressed us to the limits. It's forced us to rapidly adopt tools, technologies, all those other things. But the other thing is, is that there is now so much more focus on a much grander level of how are we going to solve problems that are facing our industry and how are we specifically going to face like health crises if they do occur again uh, that level of urgency and innovation is again you know unprecedented unprecedented empowerment and expectations of the consumer again we talk about being consumer centric a lot of that is due to this very thing the expectations right so back to point number 1 digital technology etc the relative ways that that has changed the industry is because of the fact the way that it's changed the rest of the world, right? So again, the expectation piece of this. Won't belabor this point. We've talked about it a bunch, but you know, people expect to engage with us and interact with us in ways that is analogous or in parallel to the rest of their life. Yeah. And a really good episode. Go back one episode and listen to last week's show because we we talk about uh, another you know another way that we're seeing that empowered patient now coming through here's the redheaded stepchild of technology uh-oh data mm. and the use of data and integrating data into care and decision making as the technology advances we have more and more t- ways to tr- keep track of things now we have digital health records data analytics personalized medicine, right? Offering new insights in the care delivery, AI, and all the data that comes along with it. Remember many years ago, we were talking about big data in healthcare. Well, big data is here in healthcare and it's being used for this in a way that again, is a lot different than it's ever happened before in our industry. Well, I see your data and I raise you shifting payment models. Oh, (laughs) 
No, but I mean, kind of part of is Bill really kind of building off of that theme, right? That it's things are changing, but this idea of value based care and, and it's just a fundamental structural shift in not just the way that we're paid, but the way that we deliver care and engage consumers and those types of things. So, is it good? Is it working? How do you get paid for doing what you do? for a living. Uh, that whole model is changing. Again, tomorrow, no, not not really. You know, it's things that we're focusing on now, knowing that that's skating to where the puck is going to be. As good friend of the show, Wayne Gretzky says, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Well, if you're going to raise me uh, shifts in payment models, I'm going to sweeten the pot by talking about regulatory environments and policy changes, <laughs> our favorite topic. <laughs> yeah. We are witnessing also significant changes in policy and regulation, in part due to the payment models and value-based care and things like that. Also, you know, technology advancements are causing this need to address a variety of things within our with our industry. Think about, you know, the OCR rulings around how we're tracking people online, but even extending into AI and how we're going to regulate that in this space and some of the other aspects around that. This regulatory landscape is really pushing health systems towards a faster adaptation to what's going to be happening in the future. It's kind of dragging us into the future with all the technology and everything else coming in. Well, I am all in. I'm all in pushing all the chips in the middle. Workforce dynamics. Oh, my gosh. I've done this for 20 years. We've had a nursing shortage the entire time I've been in healthcare. And I guess it's a shortage by definition, but it's like it's not, we're not going to catch up. And it's not just about nurses, right? So now we're talking about burnout. We're talking about certainly the shortage relative to you know, skilled and in really all clinical positions. What does digital transformation or some of the dynamics we've been talking about do? There's a lot here, right? And so, again, workforce is our our biggest risk, typically, uh, as an organization. How do you have enough people to provide care and, and do what it is that we do? I have to think about things a little differently. Well, you know, and I hear that in many health systems, they're doing studies on workforce engagement and also just, you know, doing some using data and analytics to kind of track their workforce. And it's surprising to see that a large number of people entering into the workforce for health systems are leaving within a year. And that's very, that's something that's different, right, that we've never seen before. So if we weren't mm-hmm. good leaders in the space, it might cause some of us, extending the, the poker analogy, to just fold, right, and just leave our cards on the table and just you know, cash out. But for many healthcare leaders, we're starting to find this sense of the ability to transform ourselves, to show up in new and different ways. And so after the break, read, let's you and I take some time to talk about the need for change in our organizations and in our leadership through developing an agile organization. We'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. A lot of moving parts and pieces, as we talked about before the break. You mentioned something we were going to get into now, which I think is an interesting concept. We, you know, we've had shows before where we've talked about what were the names of those? It was like kind of the structure of our team and some of those types of, of topics, right? Like how that's kind of evolving and how to structure your marketing department, I think. And quite honestly, it was one of our more popular uh, episodes in years past. I think it won an award maybe one year or something that's most listened to. So it's been top of mind for a while, I guess, is my point, is this idea of are we still doing things the right way? Is there a need to change? And again, that was kind of what we set up before the break was the ground is shifting beneath our feet kind of a thing. And so how do we now need to react to that? Right. And so we found a really great article called Disruption by Design, Six Traits of an Agile Organization. And it was written by a gentleman by Rick Mayer, who is a he he, he has worked in change management and um, particularly around leadership across multiple different organizations. Uh, it's a really great article on chieflearningofficer.com, which is a great website, which is a website I'm now starting to bookmark on a quite regular basis. So we're going to kind of go through a little bit of this article. He starts off actually by saying that we're often told that people don't like change. But the truth is, some people do. What makes folks more resistant to change and stress out of our, over uncertainty is how we show up. Mm. And so he kind of tries to outline ways that when we're in a very disruptive time period and we are leaders within an organization, how do we help make that organization thrive? Everybody loves a good list. And so six traits. I'm going to make some notes here to the side. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of goal planning. We want to jump in? Well, let's do it. Let's first of all, like we have to understand, right? We need to be more nimble in this day and age. We need to more, be more innovative. And so that's why he's driving towards this concept of agility and agility in your organization. And one of the things that keeps coming back when we always talk about change in our space, Reed, is this concept of workforce resilience, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard that before, right? Sure. That's an important point that he kind of highlights is that workforce resilience is actually a function of both individual traits and environmental factors or culture at the organization. So as he outlines these six traits of agile organizations, you'll notice that there's a lot of traits that are related to individual leaders, as well as creating an environment for that. So let's jump into our six traits here, Reed. First one uh, that we'll kind of point to is the idea of leadership. Uh, They call it here transformational leadership. So building an agile culture starts, not ends, but starts here, right? So how do you articulate what that vision for the future is, right? Like where are we going? Where are we headed? What's the goal? It should be aspirational, they say, but yet clear. So the workforce needs to feel quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, feel this feature. So not just understand it intellectually. And I think this is an interesting point, but how do they connect with it emotionally, right? Like, are they really bought in? It's funny. There's a fine line there uh, between aspirational and kind of that emotional connectivity, right? Like you don't want this to be so ethereal that it's like, yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. Like, I don't, 
know how that works. And I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing yesterday. Yeah, right. And I mean, oftentimes when people talk about building a, a future vision, a future state vision, you immediately think about, you know, there's a boardroom, all the C-suite people, maybe some, you know, consultants are in there helping them, a lot of whiteboard thinking, and they come up with this great vision statement or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. That's the exact opposite of what it is, right? You do have to build this concept that is aspirational yet attainable. And part of that involves participatory management, which is the second trait. Agile leaders have to give workers a voice in helping them shape that future state vision. Not just the people in the boardroom, but even down to the environmental staff. Using participatory management, it turns stakeholders into what he calls stockholders. And let me tell you why he differentiates between the two. Stakeholders, as he says, are the folks you inform as partners once decisions have been mostly made. But stockholders are co-creators. They own the change with with you. Mm -hmm. And that's an important piece here. You have to involve everyone into this change. Now, that does sound a little bit like, what, are we going to have, you know, town halls and, you know, around the entire organization and collect things? No, there are ways you could do this, but you have to give a sense of equity interest in the vision by really involving people in this. That's an important aspect here of, of the of an agile organization. So this next one, I, this is interesting to me. I, I don't know that I wholly agree with it, uh, or at least the way they're talking about it. But is organizational justice so building trust? You know, this sense that everyone is treated the same and, and fairly. They say is the key to everything else you do as a leader. Well, same and fairly. I think fairly is a word is is probably I'm okay with, right? Like we're going to be fair, but the same, I can't treat everybody the same. Like, I'm not sure that that's doing anybody justice, quite honestly. Now, the, the some of the, some of the concepts in here, like, Hey, you know, you can't order people back to the office in person if you plan to work remotely. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. But like, if you're in this hybrid environment where you've got employees scattered around the country and then you got people locally and you've got an office, you know, can you require people to be in the office locally, even though you have people scattered around the country that obviously are going to be working remotely? There's some nuance to this. I mean, I, I think I get what they're saying. You know, and they talk about modeling the change you want to see in others. And like, I don't disagree with any of that, building kind of this idea of a shared vision. But I think it's interesting. You got to be careful a little bit. It's kind of like with kids, Y'all are all different. Like, I can't treat you the same, but I will treat you fairly. Kind of read between the lines here, but it's an interesting, interesting piece. I really think that is, too. I think there, that, that, that's an important point that you brought up, right? It's about being treated fairly. Obviously, we're all different. We all have different roles. People in shared services don't have to go work in the hospitals every day, right? And that's, that's right. That's something you have to kind of think about, right? That's a very easy example to point to, but bringing that forward is, is important. And much like parents, and I'm learning this myself, right? Another <laughs> aspect of agile organizational development is having the next trait, which is positive communication. Uh, yeah. That's how you build trust, right? Often when we're in uncertain times, leaders, even managers, sometimes don't communicate to your team, particularly if it's kind of bad news or it's difficult things, that, decisions that have to be made. Waiting until they have more clarity to answer questions doesn't make sense. 
oftentimes he is saying that regular communications about not only the wins, but also setbacks are important because it's a trust-building exercise. But you do it in a way that's honest, but also in a positive way. If you are an absent leader and you don't communicate on a regular basis with who you're, you're with your team, et cetera, what you're basically doing is you're basically saying to them, we're only going to share the news with you when we're ready to share it with you. And that's a big trust breaker. Focus in on positive communications, even when you're communicating about negative setbacks that you have. Well, that bleeds a little bit into the next one around support, social support. And so that this idea of, you know, how well people cope with change or uncertainty. Obviously, if you're able to be supportive and create some sense of peace, right? Or they use the word safety, I think, in here. People have a better adaptation to change and and will will while they may not agree or completely understand you know, they're able to kind of go down that path a little bit easier. They're saying here that people adjust to change, you know, try new innovation, uh, new approaches uh, when they feel safe to do it. People talk about this idea of like failing fast, right? And I think the point of that is not, well, I mean, it is the iterative approach, I guess, to some extent, but also this idea of saying that it's okay if this doesn't work out. Now, you can't just go do whatever you want. That's different. But this, hey, if we're going towards the same goal and we want to try different things, that's giving people that level of of safety or a net, if you will, of like, if this doesn't work out, like, I'm not going to fire you. Absolutely. I think that that's a critical part of this, right? We're, we're all in this together. And that leads to the last of the six traits, which is you need to leverage group engagement to build an agile culture. We still live and work together in tribes, right? I sometimes don't like using that word tribes. It seems weird. But when you look at your organization, you have organizational tribes and even tribal leaders. And by the way, tribal leaders are not necessarily the managers or the directors on your team. Those are people that carry a lot of influence in your organization, these leaders are critical to success in building a change-tolerant DNA because they can become the voice of shaping the vision and help to ensure that your group is engaged because they're going to go through the same changes, trials and tribulations, the so failing fast. You know, all of that's going to happen at all different levels in the organization if, when you're dealing with disruption like this. Leaders who win support of the group and engage the group to build positive engagement they're the ones that are going to ensure that their organization transforms and changes quicker. This is a really interesting list of six traits. I'm, I'm glad we went through them, Reed. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, again, we've talked about a lot of these concepts. Certainly, I don't know that we've put them together in a succinct list like this. And so I think it's a good shift to focus on how we react to what we talked about before in the first segment, right? You know, these kind of monumental shifts. And so I know we've got a, a good interview today, excited about that, but I, I think this is, this is a good way to, to kind of uh, run into that. Yeah, absolutely. The interview is with David Perry and many of you know them in the healthcare space. He's held many different roles in uh, chief marketing officer at university of Utah. He's worked with, a number of organizations, Stanford Health, etc. Currently, he's with Bowstring Studios, and he and I have gotten to know each other very well. We've collaborated on a number of different projects, and he 
a few years ago wrote an article that just kind of clicked with me when I read it. And it turns out this concept of looking inside, then looking up, down, right, and left. And many healthcare leaders, they often, when they look at how they could transform themselves, they either look up or down in terms of how they could do their sphere of influence in different different ways. In this particular case, David and I explore how you could bring this concept of using your influence, your sphere of influence as a agile transformative leader in all directions within your organization. So we'll take a break here and we'll come back to that interview. And then after that, you and I will be here to close out the show. All right, welcome back. And today I am talking with a good dear friend of mine, someone I've known for a number of years, and we actually got some good quality time together at the last Healthcare Internet Conference, and that's my friend, David Perry. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure that you're here. I'm surprised after all this time we haven't had you on earlier. I'm very excited, though, that you're part of today's conversation. I figured you might have had a gap in your <laughs> content calendar. Oh, let's call Dave. No, you, you, you were very good. You gave me plenty of time. Yes. Well, you know, we and this is part of when you introduce yourself to our audience for those few people who don't know you, you could tell them why it's taken a little bit because you've been a little bit busy recently with your dissertation. But I jump ahead. Before we get into our topic at hand today, I would love for you to share a little bit more about yourself, your background, and also share a little bit about your dissertation. Sure. I've been a marketer all my life. um, And that's sort of morphing, and I'll get into that related to my doctorate dissertation. But Years ago, I started a business in high school with a buddy whose father was truly, you've heard the joke, hey, you're not a rocket scientist. His dad was a rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. And we had a business called Disco Caravan. We did high school dances and we permed our hair. I was the DJ and I really knew nothing about marketing or the term until one night I was preparing our brochures, right, to market our business. And the rocket scientist, Mr. Ben Stapleton, walks over and says, Perry, you should go into marketing. I'm like, what's that? My dad was <laughs> And uh, I, you know, got curious and one thing led to another. So that was my path through undergrad and graduate school, business school. And my first job um, out, of, uh, out of undergrad was uh, selling soap. Um, went on to be part of an ad, ad agency that had a Louisville Slugger and Maker's Mark and some fun brands like that. And then decided I wanted to go back to school and really focus on brand management and the strategic aspects of marketing. So I did that. And my first job out of uh, MBA school was at Quaker Oats and I marketed dog food, cycle dog food, wow. stage dog food available in the grocery store. I still know the tagline. And I moved on to Aunt Jemima uh, Pancake Mix. That brand has changed over, uh, over the last few years. And then a friend of mine from graduate school had gone to Microsoft and she said, hey, things are working out pretty well with this Windows thing and Office. And <laughs> this was years ago. And she said, we need consumer marketers. So I moved there and I worked there for a decade and worked in Paris for a couple of years I, out of the Paris headquarters, the European headquarters. So that was a great European experience. And then kind of hung my shingle out for a few years as a consultant And um, my life changed in 2002 when my youngest son was born with a cleft lip and my oldest at three years old was diagnosed with autism. So pediatric healthcare became a big part of 
our life. And so I got involved with Seattle Children's as a donor, small donor, and ultimately reached out to them one day and said, I'd love to do some work for you all. And it turns out they were doing a national search for a VP of marketing at the same time. You know, careers can be serendipitous, right? Just you believe in faith. Things kind of just happen. So I got the job and have been in healthcare or higher ed ever since in the nonprofit space and have truly enjoyed it. And most recently have um, been a consultant uh, and then um, about a year, a little over a year ago, I Bowstring Studios is the executive vice president on creating content, planning, strategy behind it, distribution for healthcare and those two sectors. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned the dissertation. So I am getting my um, doctorate in organizational development, organization development and change. It's officially what's called ODNC. And I'm doing that because more and more when I was consulting, I got more requests for doing type of org type work than marketing work. Let's do an offsite for team building. We'll get into that in a minute. What, can you help us you know, really look at um, how our structure should be or how should we work with HR or how are we going to launch the new strategic plan internally and things like that? I think I underestimated the role marketing organizational design can play internally. And particularly where the health, we're talking about healthcare space, great vast need there, great upside potentials. It really is an interesting kind of pathway that you took. Where you and I started to get to know each other is in when you were, you know, where you were working with marketing and mar- marketing leadership in, in health systems. And we've seen that role shift a lot. Let's start off our conversation talking a little bit about where do you see it? Like, where do, where do you see is happening now? I mean, if you ask us five, 10 years ago, a marketing leader is a lot different than one is today, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, we have a mutual friend who I was just listening to a, another podcast, uh, Marion Deslin, right? Have I got that? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And she's a former CMO like myself. And a lot of what she said confirmed my feelings. It's always good to have, you know, hear, a, hear another opinion from a peer and you go, that's exactly the way I feel. But the role is really evolving. I think um, what's different than maybe early in my career is there is a lot more. And I think healthcare, being in healthcare now, it wasn't where I started my career, is this need to um, kind of evolve from staying in your lane, right? You just, you, you launch things, you you try to increase the revenue for a clinical service area, maybe do some branding work, some thought leadership work. But there is, I think, a greater demand uh, for a strategic role and a collaborative role where you really do add value at different levels, whether that's the C-suite, even at the board level. We had a great um, opportunity to land in our laps as healthcare marketers with covid where suddenly, you know, this uh, one, uh, the website uh, became a, a, even a more important channel, right, for telemedicine and other, other ports of entry. But there was also this need to get creative in bringing back business or, you know, really looking at building uh, back the clinical business, the elective surgeries, all these type of things. And I think that window of opportunity opened and hopefully most of us took advantage of that. Maybe some didn't. But I do think this uh, role of, you know, years ago, you would say, oh, you do sales support or, oh, you're the guy that does the logo or whatever it might be. It's on us, right, to, to define who we are and educate others as to who we are and what we are capable of and what value we can add, um, you know, up, down, sideways, all around. 
And so I think people are realizing that more. Most of the discussions I'm having are really with marketers who are um, dealing with a, a CEO, helping that uh, leader transform the organization. They may be working with their HR counterpart or their IT counterpart in transformation type of work within the organization via an acquisition or a new platform uh, that's being adopted on our tech side, internally and externally. Or demonstrating the value of that role, quite frankly, right? In my experience, it's been the marketer is only as good as they can market themselves, so to speak, right? Or yeah, be involved. sometimes they ignore the marketing them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> organization. And that's common, right? You're looking outside. You sometimes don't look at your own house. Yeah, I don't mean that in, a, in marketing in kind of a, a, a nefarious way here. You know, we are experts at marketing and communications, yet we often don't really represent that when we deal with our peers within the organization, right? And so they, they can potentially undervalue what marketing can provide and then see you as just the brand expert or the the person that creates billboards or whatever, right? I mean, but that kind of lead, led, led us down this path to a blog post that you wrote a, a, a couple of years ago now. I won't mention how many years because I don't want to date you, but a couple of years <laughs> ago. Just a few years ago. Just a few years. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's an interesting framework and it's called the up down sideways framework. I'll start with a story, and I think this will kind of hopefully be a good way to put some context to it. So, a number of years ago, when I was at Microsoft, I worked for an individual who um, was very unique in many ways. I loved working for this individual. Uh, the leadership that he reported to loved working with him, but his peers did not, right? His reputation was not good among his peers. And that's kind of the first time I started thinking about this sort of directional way of managing, right? I was like, oh, that's going to be a flaw for this individual. Otherwise, on, on, on his way to great things, but that's going to be a hindrance, particularly as you think about teamwork and the growth of collaboration models. So this poster is really about sort of standing there in the middle, looking at yourself and looking up to leadership, your boss or whatever, looking below. And I don't mean that uh, in a negative way, but looking at the people who report to you. Let's call them subordinates. I don't like that term, but you, just to give you some structure. We normally focus on that. Ah, i got to manage my boss, right? Make him happy. Got to make sure I'm protecting my people, standing up for my people. And we sometimes do that to a fault. But we don't always think about our peers, right? If you're at the VP level, the other VPs or the other directors. And I think you really miss a lot of, you, there's a lot of untapped potential there. Um, you just talked about it earlier, right? We could educate them more as to what our value is. And we could sure as heck learn a lot more about what they do and how it might be advantageous to our own group. And then you've got to talk to your team, your subordinates, your team members about their peers, right? And how they could work more closely with their peers. And it, there's mentoring opportunities, there's uh, ideation, ID sh I, I, you know, idea sharing. And more and more, you're going to start to see, there's just an announcement today, Fidelity uh, is kind of rearranging things in their organization because um, Abby Johnson, I believe Abby Johnson is the CEO, has been for about a decade, wants executives to have experiences across their organization, right? Not siloed. So there's career opportunities there too uh, of, of looking through that kind that kind of lens. And I am guilty of kind of 
being um, myopic up till a certain point in my career, about until I was probably a, more of a senior director and had a large enough team where you started to have issues, right? Of you had to manage people and everything from I want a window office to I'm not getting along with director A and B. And I started to get more involved in taking my directs on off sites and spending a lot more time trying to build trust and respect and um, accountability and realize that one thing I said, boy, I wish I would have taken more OB classes in school, right? I would have think I would have thought more about this. I was so driven by building shit market share and things. So I think that's that is the genesis behind that article. And the notion was, could I just share some thinking, particularly with folks that are coming up in an organization? And I think in health systems, it's paramount, it's imperative that you think this way. Yeah. Right? Think about our industry. I mean, I'm amazed, and it's really endearing to me that we share so much as or as I mean, peers that sometimes are competitors or in the same markets, you'll see people speaking to these shows, sharing their knowledge, sharing their expertise. I see that as peer networking, right? This is CMOs on stage together, directors, you know, sitting off to the side after a session. You don't always see that in industries. And I think if you can master these skills or develop these skills, looking up, down, sideways, it's going to be a beneficial uh, first and foremost, you know, selfishly for you and your career development, your career advancement, but also for the organization. And ultimately, it's going to benefit, you know, ultimately our, our patients, customers, whatever you want to call them. I think it's really interesting how you kind of position that. In fact, you have a really great line. I'm going to quote you to yourself here. But you said adopting this kind of framework allows you to be both strategic and selfish as well as altruistic. Exactly. Yes. I, I think that's what we all try to strive for. And the altruistic part is an interesting one. I, um, I wrote another article about mentoring. I, there was someone that recognized me as a mentor because of some of this approach I took that I didn't even know I was mentoring. Right. She put in a LinkedIn post a couple of years ago. I want to thank all my mentors. She had gotten promoted to a pretty high level and I was listed. I probably interact. I, I remember interacting with her and supporting and all that, but so you never know through these relationships. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, when we're taking account of what we've left behind on this earth, I think mentoring or having someone recognize you as someone that, you know, paid it forward or supported someone or opened a door to, that's important to me, at least. This shift really impacts some of the things that we're seeing right now with chief marketing officers in health systems. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. And I think specifically, you know, we're dealing with a lot of disruptive changes, if change is the right word here, but disruption maybe. How do you see your perspective kind of playing out in today's day-to-day? It's a story that's still unfolding. I just, every day I'm looking at Becker's or these sources, another acquisition, you know, or consolidation. I mean, you and I were talking about this. There's been a consolidation, not only within the health systems, but the organizations that serve them. Look at what's going on with agencies. So um, the whole <laughs> ecosystem is really shifting. I think if you look at the role of a, of a marketing and communications um, professional, it should naturally be a role that's valued and is very adaptable and can all roll with the punches, if you will, right? So you know, you, there's usually during an acquisition, some cultural challenges. HR can't do that alone. There's some messaging that has to go on. There's some leadership and thought leadership and 
ongoing communication. I always say in healthcare, you think you should communicate it twice. I would say multiply that by two or three, right? And so there is this whole internal communication role that needs to go on that I think sometimes we look at is not as important as the external part. Maybe it's not as sexy or as interesting, but more and more, I think that's the role we're going to play. We don't need to shy away from that or look down at that or consider that a second priority, you know, or something that we can ignore. And I think that's going to be appreciated by the board, the C-level. Ultimately, you want to be a CEO whisperer in a way, right? You want to be that person that maybe not only the CEO, but um, the leaders, both your peers and above you, seek out for advice. Um, And you see what happens when maybe we don't play a role with messaging and um, people don't really step back and look at it in a strategic, thoughtful way. Shame on us if we weren't involved and proactive in trying to do that. You brought it up earlier. I think we kind of got, got, have to redefine what we do and who we are, particularly to the folks that we work with in finance and IT and in HR and ultimately uh, the C-suite, which many, many folks are listening to this are a part of, is becoming... Um, so this uh, person that looks things through a broader lens is, is really honest and transparent. Uh, isn't just their subject matter expert, but is um, a broader authority that can be called on to provide a perspective. Now it might be coming from a marketing communications lens to some degree, but um, there is a, you have a broader perspective. Like how does my expertise pertain beyond this area, my little world, and how does it add value? You know, honestly, on the selfish side, you need to look for opportunities like that. COVID offered, as you and I have talked about, COVID offered a lot of opportunities. Some of us had advantage, some of us didn't. COVID provided a uniquely singular opportunity for us healthcare leaders, right? The healthcare marketing leaders, because the organization was very much focused on, on a singular or, or at least a narrow set of priorities. But you and I have been in this space for a very long time, and we also understand that in a health system, it's not always a singular focus. In fact, it it could feel like it's a scattershot focus, right? It's like all over the place. And that leads me to this question, and I'd love to hear your honest assessment of this, David. Do you think the health system industry, the, the, the marketing leaders within health systems right now have the capability to sort of use this up-down, sideways framework, this concept of being able to to communicate and market themselves more effectively by developing these relationships up, down, and to their peers. Do we have the capacity to do that? I do think we have the right profile of leaders. I think of leaders that, you know, you and I were involved at PCIC interviewing 12 of them. I would think 201, all of them have that, what I would call innate uh, intelligence, you know, the intellectual curiosity, the sort of this idea of humility, um, yet strategic smarts. Now, the problem is you've got a lot on your plate, right? There's so many distractions. I remember when I got into healthcare, I had not been responsible for what kind of the area of crisis communication. You get into these situations where, you know, there's a crisis. This happens a lot. Every, it, you know, I don't mean using the distraction word uh, is not fair when it's a death or whatever it might be. You know, it might be a big issue, a press issue or what have you. But you get, you know, you get pulled in a lot of different directions, particularly in these large systems. It does take some time management. But I, 
the people I have met that are at these high levels of marketing communications and health systems, for the most part, overall, to a great, great degree, are some of the brightest people. They have empathy. They came that they could make money, more money somewhere else, Fortune 500, whatever it may be. They came here for a reason. I think most of them could do quite well in other organizations, but they chose this profession, passion, you know, maybe they have a personal experience. I do think we have the capability. I think the mindset may need to shift and you may need to push back some when you're asked to create, uh, you know, 2000 more t-shirts or whatever. <laughs> yeah. These things happen, right? I had a, I had worked for a lot of CEOs that love that stuff. You know, that's fine. But sometimes you really do have to, you've got to manage your, you know, your boss, your organization in some ways. And, and sometimes it, it's uncomfortable to push back and say, no, we're, you know, we, that, that's going to take this amount of time. That's going to take away. There's opportunity cost, I guess. Right. Right. To be clear, it's sharing what gives if I'm going to go do, this sponsorship or whatever it might be. And I would say to kind of uh, kind of pull this little thought together and with a bow around it is I do think it gets into this idea that you're part of a growth. You, you drive growth, volume growth, which we're pretty comfortable with. Um, this idea of growing um, phil- philanthropy, we might think that's someone else's job, but we can certainly help the foundation president with that. Looking at the budget and seeing where we can lower expenses and increase revenue, maybe in areas outside of just another clinical services campaign, right? And for the most part, that role of a CMO and their and their team, the good thing is you get to see a lot of the organization. Um, yes, and a COO knows a lot about the internal operations, but you see the inside and the outside. And shame on you if you're not being the voice of external, internally, you know, really educating people. You have the data for the most part. We should by now really understanding what the market dynamics are. And as you pointed out when you asked me this question, they're, they, they, they're a changing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And you're probably the first to feel the pain. Ultimately, it's going to hit financially, but you're the first. You know, you're sort of like Paul Revere out there, right? You know, consolidation is coming. I love it. Consumer expectations are coming. They're coming. <laughs> you know? And you got to get back behind the fort and, you know, get, get ready. I will say this. About I'm a bit of a risk taker. But I realize that in healthcare, you know, this, these are lives at stake, you know, particularly when you get right down to patient care. But there are there's HIPAA issues. There's there's a lot of risk avoidance. And um, it's easy to kind of say no to things, too. Right? Oh, that's, that's going to be extra work or that's risky or whatever. But I think you also not only have to be the CEO whisperer, you have to be the convener of dialogue and sort of the voice of the outside, I think you also have to have the person that kind of, I used to bring out a bold meter, right? It was just a, it was a slide and it went from zero to level 11. Now the level 11 will date me, but that was in spinal tap, volume to 11. Of course. I would say to a board or, uh, you know, a cabinet council, I'd say, where do we want to be in the marketplace for orthopedics or some area we were battling competition? Are we a five, a four, a two, a six, an 11? Of course, usually they say, we want to be a 10, and they really mean six. Ultimately, (laughs) you start at 10, you get to six. But we have to ask those kinds of questions. I think we also have to be, we have to balance the uh, pragmatic with the aspirational, right? Particularly when you're talking about growth or investing in areas or you've acquired someone. I, I don't really... I used to use SWOT as a framework, right? So I think that's fine. I prefer SOAR, strengths, opportunities, aspirations, and results. 
Oh, okay. For marketing, right? I've recorded video looking 10 years into the future and presented that to a board and said, this is what could be for X organization. And you're going to be a part of it today as a board because you're making big decisions for our future. And you need to be the person that tees this up, right? You're the communicator. You're the idea person. But you also have to ground that with some practicality, knowledge of the organization, knowledge of the balance sheet. So, Well, when you first said SOAR, I thought it, the abbreviation was S-O-R-E. And I thought, well, oh, I feel that one. Well, you do get sore after a while. But I really <laughs> like, you know, that's a, that's a simple thing, but it's a shift in mindset and how, how the terminal, the language you use. And you, hey, I'll tell you, those junior people on your team are watching every move, right? They're learning from it. They're learning and, from uh, you. Exactly. And and you're going to make mistakes. I have come out of meetings where I dribbled it out of bounds, to use a, a sports analogy. And I had, to, and sometimes my team was present. I actually tried to have them present. Uh, maybe some meetings I shouldn't have, right? But just to, I, I think you do have to have some humility and all that too, right? I was wrong, or maybe we should look at it a different way, or maybe he or she's right. Always think of, who you're talking to. It's like, you know, it's like a lot like negotiations. Put yourself in their shoes, right? Try to kind of assume a different point of view and kind of make your decisions. So that's probably more philosophy than marketing. But anyway, you asked. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think marketing is part philosophy if you think about it, right? Um, another thing one, one leader taught me is that at any given point in time, you as a, a leader in an organization, you're either a coach a, a mentor or a director. As a coach, you teach them the plays, you encourage them along. As a mentor, you sit in that role of here's where I've been and here's what I've learned. And then as a director, it's just like, look, we don't have time to go over all of this stuff. Just do this. You know? Yes. That's the balance, right? That we all need to kind of play when we're in this space. You kind of have to adapt, you know, read the room, if you will. And that's what, again, I think that's what marketers and, and communicators that should be just a requirement that we're adaptable like that right <laughs> that's mm-hmm. probably part of our part of the requirement of the job to some degree mm-hmm. david i always love conversations with you and so this might be a good time for you to share with our audience who want to learn more about you your company bowstring i'll start with bowstring i joined bowstring uh, over a year ago because i was a client of theirs many years ago and they were one of the best partners that i worked with because they trained me how to use content in a more effective way, right? I, I initially would call on a Thursday and say, the president wants to do a thought leadership piece, a two-minute video, and we need to film it next Wednesday or Tuesday. And they'd say, we'll do that, and you know, you'll, you'll, you'll pay for that. But boy, if you could sit back and really apply some content planning to this, a lot of what we do is produce um, video. We focus first on content planning when, where possible. We try to work with our clients on that. And then build out content calendars. Look at different forms of, of content. Heavily video, but it, it's very different forms of content. Whether that's a preparing for um, a campaign for a clinical service line or a whole brand launch or maybe doing physician relations work where we're profiling 200 physicians and creating you know, a template or approach for that make it very effective for an organization. And the next presentation uh, will be at HMPS in April in Vegas, and I'll have Michiko Tanabe from Stanford Medicine uh, and Donna Teach from Nationwide Children's on stage with me. And we're, uh, the title is, there's content for that. You know, the CEO has a request, a question, there's content for that. It's kind of tongue in cheek, but the idea is 
how do we use content to address various scenarios that a CMO and their team find themselves in, right? And what it will do in the show notes, we'll link to your LinkedIn, we'll link to Bowstring's website. And uh, for those of you attending HMPS, um, the Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit in April, uh, definitely keep an eye out. Uh, David and I are going to be hanging out together there. Thanks again for joining the show. And let's not make it another eight years before you join again. I would love to come back. It's been a privilege, Chris. Thank you for thinking of me. And um, I hope there are a couple of nuggets that the audience could take away that adds some value on some level. So up, down, and sideways, right? Up, down, and sideways. There you go. Okay. Thanks again. Bye. Special thanks to David for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate his time and, and expertise and insights. Anybody that's you know done this for a minute, it's always uh, it's always great to to hear from. This is a, an interesting topic, and we'll continue to I think focus in on this as time goes. Certainly, everybody's going to attack this kind of in their own way, but uh, yeah. uh, really appreciate his thoughts. Absolutely, and you know this marks the second episode we've done this year already on leadership in healthcare. So. It kind of speaks to a, a bigger trend here, Reed. Well, let's do some recommendations. Again, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. But before we get out of here, uh, what do you got today? Reed, this might sound a little self-serving, but I'm going to recommend another podcast that I do on this network called Surprise, It's Not a Toaster. About small appliances? Yeah, it's a, it's a podcast about small appliances. No, mm-hmm. um, actually, <laughs> it's a show that a good friend of our podcast, Ed Bennett, and I have been doing now for a couple of months. It comes out every other week. We kind of dive into some kind of annoyance that happens online. Some of the things that we've talked about include password management, how annoying that is, or influencers, or AI-enabled products, you know, a variety of different kind of annoyances. And then every week, Ed shares uh, like a tip or a technology that he uses, something that, you know, that he kind of plays around with, or, Mm -hmm, uh, you mm -hmm. know, it's kind of fun for him, the tech segment, so to speak. And then... The last segment is uh, I get to try out generative AI and test it out. And we have kind of fun with that. This show is a lot of fun. I know it's self-serving for me to promote my own show, but it's kind of fun. It's it's a little bit lighter than our show. It's not necessarily healthcare. It's not necessarily digital. It's more just a general entertainment show. So I would recommend for people that are listening to the show, if they like what we listen, what we they hear here, to just jump over to our website, touchpoint.health, and Click over to that surprise. It's not a toaster. The first episode tells you why we call it that. That's my recommendation. I'm recommending uh, an e-commerce site. Not going to come in terribly handy for for a lot of folks, but when you need it, it'll be handy. It's called theblacktux.com. You can buy and or rent tux or suits via this website. So again, if you just wanted to rent a suit, a lot of people aren't dressing up quite as much for work these days, but if you had a work function or something like that, certainly a wedding, a gala, some event, you know, things like that, that's black ties, you know. So they've got navy, navy suits, gray suits. They've got the traditional black tux, midnight blue tux. So there's a lot of options here. You can get shoes, shirts, suspenders. I mean, the whole the whole thing. Uh, depending on where you live, they actually have some showrooms. Or you can uh, do a home try-on. Or you go through the quick Q&A portion of this, and it tells you uh, what you need, and then they send it. And you can get it pretty quick. There's a little bit of an upcharge for a quick delivery. But kind of interesting where you're like, you know, 
Who wants to go to the mall and like stand around and like rent a tux and you know that kind of thing? Anyway, kind of a cool option for those looking at uh, either buying or renting a tux or a suit. Now you and I both know that you did you were doing this because you're preparing to go to the the next Nobel Peace Prize. Award. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I had to have a black tie for that gala <laughs> and, uh, for all new winners. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, there's no need to buy it. I mean, I'm not going to win more than once. So <laughs> I think there's like something in the rules about that. But <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, check out the blacktux.com. Kind of an interesting concept. Again, if you need need something for an upcoming event. Yeah, there you go. That's there great. You go. great recommendation. All right, folks. Uh, we certainly appreciate all of the support. Reach out to us on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way to do that. Rate, review, subscribe. That's still the number one way people find us. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.